0: Log Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikoway. Uh Today is Tuesday, December 26, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios uh, in downtown Detroit. Later on in our program, Uh, we'd like to bring you a regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We have dispatches on, uh, of course, uh, the developments uh, in the North African state of Sudan, uh, where uh, the RSF leader uh, has pledged to support a proposal by former interim Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak for ending the war. Uh, Niger has uh, withdrawn from yet another uh, French-led Uh, international institution. We'll have details on that as well. And, uh, of course, uh, there's going to be uh, information on the recent assassination of uh, Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps General uh, Mousavi. And, uh, finally, uh, we discuss uh, the escalating resistance on the part of Hamas and other resistance organizations in Gaza to the IDF uh, occupation these and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, the legendary Umkal Tum, the Umkal Tum Orchestra uh, Film Festival. This is a concert recorded uh, on uh, May 4th of 1961. Uh, let's listen in.
2: سيدتي وسادتي، أسعد الله أوقاتكم جميعاً. لقاؤنا في مثل هذا اليوم من كل شهر مع كوكب الشرق، السيدة أم كلثوم، وهو لقاء ننتظره في شوق. شوق يفيض من نفوسنا جميعا حينما نتهيأ لهذه الليلة الساهرة الكبرى ونتهيأ معها لأحاسيس تفيد في نفوسنا جميعا نطوف بها مع غناء أم كلثوم التي تملأ أسماعنا وتملأ قلوبنا بشدوها وحلو غنائها وفنها الحبيب تملأ نفوسنا وتملأ عواطفنا لهذا الصوت الذي يغني للعاطفة وينبض بالعاطفة يغني الحنان وينبض بالحنان يغني العاطفة في كبريائها كما يغني العاطفة في دلالها وفي نعطافاتها الفلوة المشرقة ومن هنا يكون تطلعنا الدائم الى مثل هذه الليلة من كل شهر وفي هذا الموسم التقينا مع ام كلثوم مع مايكروفون اذاعه الجمهورية العربية المتحده سبع مرات بدات في شهر ديسمبر فكانت الحفلات الست شهريه وكانت هناك ايضا الحفله الساهره التي اقيمت بمناسبه انعقاد مؤتمر المحامين العرب كنا نستمع إلى أم كلثوم في كل حفلة ربما غنت أغنيات نحبها وتكررها ولكننا نسمع في كل مرة معنى جديدا أو نسمع في كل مرة عاطفة تتجاوب بها قلوبنا جميعا ونحن نعيش هذه الساعات مرة كل شهر مع هذه الحنجرة الذهبية مع هذه الثروه القومية التي تقدمها أمك السموم سيداتي وسادتي وفي مسرح حديقة الازبكيه حيث نتحدث معكم وننقل لكم هذه السفرة التي نرجو أن نستمتع بها جميعا سنستقبل أولى الوصلات الغنائية لكوكب الشرق السيدة أم كلثوم وفيها نستمع إلى قصة طال شوقنا إليها استمعنا إليها أول مرة منذ سنتين قصة الأمن يرفع ستار عن كوكب الشرق السيده أم كلثوم التي ستقدم قصة الالف شعر المرحوم احمد السكي ورفان رياض الصمدي وعلى التي هذه العاصفة وفي هذه العاصفة التي استقبلت بها كوكب الشرق والتي قبلت فيها بعد ختام هذه الوصله الأولى، لعل فيها تعبيرا متواضعا عن أفساد الحاضرين هنا في مزرح حديقة الازبكيه في هذه الساعة وبعض الساعه التي عاشوها وعشتموها معنا مع هذه الاغنيه اللي أو مع هذه الصورة التي ترجمتها أم كلثوم أنغاما عذبة سكبتها في أسماعنا وفي نفوسنا في هذه الوصفه الاولى التي قدمتها لكم في صهرة الليلة وبحسب وبحسبكم ما نحن فيه جميعا من هذه المتعة وبحسبنا اننا سنلتقي مرة ثانية وثالثة باذن الله في هذه الليلة mutatin lips Shadwe Say that you said that he Alan Welcome
1: back. And that was uh Mikhail Tom's Orchestra over a uh, Radio Cairo live uh, concert uh, from uh, nineteen sixty one. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, December 26, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to move right now into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines uh, in today's Pan-African Newswire. One of the lead stories uh, deals with the current political situation in the West African state of Niger. Niger has suspended all cooperation uh, with the International Organization of Francophone Nations, the OIF, its military leaders said as it progressively severs ties with former colonial ruler France. In a new move to cut all contact with France, Niger's junta cut cords with one more French-led organization, the 88-member body defending the French language has always been used by France as an instrument to defend French interests, said a statement uh, from a spokesperson of Niger's uh, ruling uh, military government. Uh, this was reported earlier today on uh, national uh, television. The OIF uh, had already suspended most cooperation with Niger last week because of the coup but said it would maintain those programs directly benefiting civilian populations and those contributing to the restoration of democracy. The organization's stated mission is to promote the French language, support peace and democracy, and encourage education and development in the Francophone countries around the world, many of which are former French colonies. The government of Niger calls on the African people They decolonize their minds and promote their own national languages in accordance with the ideas of the founding fathers of Pan-Africanism, the CNSP government uh, said in a statement. The government said in a separate statement uh, on Sunday that it had not yet decided how long it would hold on to power, but that the length of the transition would be determined after an inclusive national dialogue. It did not say when the dialogue would take place, The government uh, took power in Niger on July 26, uh, and it has strongly been condemned by France and some other West African states, those uh, in the leadership of the economic community of West African states. The government soon demanded the departure of French troops, which had been purportedly helping to fight a decade-old Islamist insurgency in the West African country. In other news, the leader of the Rapid Support Forces in Sudan expresses readiness in favor of a better sent uh, by the Civil Front for Democracy, Abdullah Hamdak, to initiate talks regarding an end to the ongoing war in Sudan. The commander of Sudan's Rapid Support Forces expressed earlier today his willingness uh, to meet with Abdullah Hamdak the head of the Civil Front for Democracy to discuss ways to end the ongoing war in Sudan between the Sudanese army and the ISF since April the 15th. In a post, ex-formally known as Twitter, Mohammed Hamdan Delgallo Hameti said, quote, I have received a letter from the head of the Civil Front for Democracy, Abdallah Hamdak, inviting us to an urgent meeting to discuss the issues of stopping the war and addressing its effects. He added, I fully welcome holding this meeting immediately, and we'll directly begin discussing the arrangements for it. Uh, We extend our hands and welcome to every national effort that brings peace and ends the suffering caused uh, by the war. Last week, uh, Sudanese media reported that Abdel Fattah al-Bahan, the head of the Sudan's sovereignty council and army chief, informed the intergovernmental authority on development of his agreement to hold a direct meeting with his rival, the commander of the RSF. According to the Sudan Tribune website, al Bahan announced his agreement to meet with Hermione, but he has conditions before holding the meeting. In a related context, uh, while addressing a military gathering in the Red Sea State, al Bahan revealed the possibility of engaging in negotiations with Delgado last Thursday. However, he emphasized that he would not sign a peace agreement that involves disgrace and humiliation to the people of the armed forces. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswatch segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Footage provided by resistance groups to the Al-Mahadeen television network shows Al-Qassam resistance fighters targeting Israeli tanks and military vehicles in the northern region of Gaza. Al Mahadeen News Channel aired uh, earlier today exclusive footage obtained uh, from the military media of Hamas, El Qasim Brigade, showing the group's resistance fighting targeting Israeli occupation vehicles in the Sheikh Zaid area in the northern Gaza Strip. The first part of the footage reveals an El Qasim fighter discreetly monitoring an Israeli Makava battle tank from in between the debris of a destroyed building before striking and hitting it with an al yassin 105 shells just as it reaches the target zone in a separate operation a fighter also emerging from the debris of a destroyed house targeted another israeli military vehicle with the al yassin 105 meanwhile the third operation which also targeted another military vehicle was carried from the rooftop of a small damaged built building. As for the last attack revealed in the footage, a resistance fighter sneaked to the side of a military vehicle before striking it with an Al Yassin one oh five shell as well. Earlier today, Al Qasim brigades revealed a joint operation with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad Al Quds Brigade, which targeted five Israeli military vehicles with tandem and Al Yassin 105 projectiles near Jabalia al-Balad in northern Gaza. In detail, the group said that resistance fighters used machine guns and TVG shells in a coordinated attack on an Israeli force barricaded in a building in the same area, resulting in Israeli soldiers being killed and wounded. In a separate significant operation, Al Qasim announced that his fighters successfully lured an Israeli special forces into a house in Bet Hanun, north of Gaza, and demolished it uh, with three anti personnel improvised explosive devices, uh, stun grenades, and a Shawaz armor piercing explosive, leading to the death of the entire force. And uh, finally, as the situation uh, escalates uh, in the region, Sadiq Mousavi, the son of martyred senior. Islamic uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps commander, Brigadier General Saeed Razi Mousavi, talked to al-Mahdin about his father who always wished to end his life with martyrdom. Sadiq Mousavi, son of the martyred senior RGC commander, Brigadier General Saeed Razi Mousavi, addressed the Israeli occupation saying, we may have lost a lot of martyrs down this course, but we shall remain present and we shall forever pursue this path. Speaking to an alma Mahadeen uh, earlier uh, on Monday, the martyr's son confirmed that the path uh, trod uh, by the Israeli occupation will lead to its destruction and eventual punishment and perishment. Meanwhile, Musavi greeted the resistance, calling on everyone to pursue this path with full force no matter what. He described that the relationship between his father and martyr Qasem Soleimani, goes beyond the military scope, hinting at close brotherly relations. He also stressed that Commander Soleimani lives on in the hearts of all people. He concluded saying that his father had hoped to end his life with martyrdom, confirming that this path requires sacrifices and blood. Earlier, the Iranian government spokesperson, Ali Barodori Jaromi, confirmed that the appropriate response to the Criminal Terrorist Act of assassinating the military advisor, Brigadier General Saeed Razi Mousavi, will be carried out at the right time and place. On his part, the spokesperson for the Iranian Parliament National Security and Foreign Policy Commission, Abol Fazil Amoui, stressed that the assassination of Marta Mousavi carried out in uh, an aggression to targeting Damascus will not go unanswered. A harsh response is awaiting the Zionist entity, he said. The Speaker of the Iranian Shura Council, Mohammed Bakir Khwilabaf, said the most malicious and unjust human on earth assassinated Martin Musavi, stressing that the Zionist entity will pay a heavy price for its crime. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was formed in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot. And if you'd like to have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal, special wide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, December the 26th, 2023. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
0: door to your heart and you turned the key locked your love away from me Took my hope. Look at me now. Look. At- Fade the air.
1: of uh, the Supreme's love is here and now you're gone. <clears throat> and are uh, you listening to the Pan-African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast a special edition of our program on Tuesday, December 26, 2023. And as we mentioned uh, earlier in the Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, the General uh, Mousavi uh, of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was assassinated in Syria, uh, undoubtedly at the hands of the United States and Israel we're going to listen uh, to a report uh, that uh, captures the response uh, to this latest uh, provocation taking place uh, in uh, West Asia. Uh, let's listen in.
3: Well, Iran has warned that Israel will pay after a senior member of Iran's Revolutionary Guard was killed in an airstrike in Syria. Razi Mousavi was killed in the suburbs of the capital, Damascus. He was considered a close ally of General Qasem Soleimani, the Revolutionary Guard Commander, who was killed in a U.S. drone attack in
0: 2020.
3: (laughs) Following Mustafa killing, supporters of the Iranian government gathered in Tehran calling for revenge. Israel has carried out hundreds of strikes on targets inside government-controlled parts of Syria in recent years. Well, Ali Akbar Darini is a researcher at the Journal of the Center for Strategic Studies in Tehran. He joins us from Mashhad. Thank you so much for being uh, with us on Al Jazeera. First of all, Iran, uh, as I mentioned, there has warned that Israel, quote, will pay. How serious is that threat, and what sort of response do you think we can expect?
4: Um, There is no way that Iran is not going to respond to this act of terrorism. Killing a top Iranian general in a foreign land is a violation of international law uh, Israel has uh, has stepped one, one uh, move further uh, into uh, the red zone. It's, uh, it has crossed the red line. So Iran will retaliate. But how Iran is going to retaliate to this assassination uh, is, is uh, not clear at this point. But uh, what we can say with certainty is that Iran will retaliate at the time and place Of its own choosing, it could be in uh, in 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 terms of Iranian allies uh, uh, attacking Israel. It could be uh, an act uh, of revenge from within Israel, and it could be an Iranian expansion of its uh, nuclear program. Uh, So uh, there is a number of uh, options Iran has, but Iran is not going to show any emotional reaction. Iran's retaliation will be based on calculations, not emotion.
3: Okay. can you just tell us a little bit more about Razi Massavi and and just how important a figure he was uh, within the Revolutionary Guard?
4: Uh, General Mousavi was a uh, top figure, uh, an influential figure in coordinating Iran's regional policy of creating a strategic depth. And that means uh, he was a, uh, a, an influential figure uh, coordinating uh, Iran's efforts with uh, General Soleimani and in the post. Soleimani era, uh, you know, in, being involved in, uh, in uh, actions that, uh, that deter Israel and improve Iran's uh, uh, regional deterrence policy. Uh, he was a key figure in, uh, in the war in Syria, in, in, in protecting uh, President Bashar al-Assad's government, and also uh, providing support to Iranian allies, including Hezbollah. Mm uh so he he uh, his loss is a big uh is a big uh you know a harm for iran and iran uh, is making sure that uh, it'll, it will it will respond there is a mounting pressure on the raisi administration to react but iran will act uh, based on very careful strategic mm. calculation uh, but the big reason is it-
3: Yes, go oh, ahead. No, I was going to say, you mentioned the, the pressure that's coming uh, on, the, on the government. We, we've seen protesters taking to the streets calling for revenge. Can you just give us a sense of just how much anger there is there?
5: Uh,
4: what I see today uh, is a replay of the anger of the uh, of the former u s President Donald Trump ordered the assassination of general soleimani the, uh, the, the, There is the same anger being revived now, so Iran cannot uh, cannot remain silent it has to take action to deter Israel otherwise Israel will uh, will go uh, for more terrorism and and will be more aggressive. The the main reason for wars and conflicts in the Middle East is the fact that there is no uh, balance of power. Uh, Israel is equipped with nuclear weapons, it invades its neighbors without Fearing uh, the uh, the consequences or without the fear of being punished uh, in the same way this has led to Israeli aggressions and uh, uh, but now uh, the Iranian uh, decision makers uh, are contemplating on how to uh, detain the rabid dog of the Middle East, Netanyahu and his government, by uh, by punishing Israel in a way that it's not going to uh, to repeat this uh, act mm. of terrorism again.
3: Okay, thank you so much for your your time and your insight. That is Ali Akbar Darini for us uh, there in Tehran.
0: Yeah, welcome.
1: And that was a report on um, the assassination of uh, Razim Mousavi, uh, who was killed uh, in Syria. And uh, here's another uh, more in-depth discussion on uh, the situation uh, taking place uh, involving Iran.
6: Thank you for joining us. Good morning and welcome to our special coverage of the Israel Hamas war as the crisis in the Middle East continues. I'm Alumide McCauley. Coming up today, Egypt proposes three-phase plan to end war between Israel and Hamas. Iran accuses Israel of killing senior commander in Syria airstrike. Plus, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu heckled by families of Hamas hostages as they interrupt Knesset session. Thank you so much for being with us today. Egypt has proposed a three-phase plan to end the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, but it's unclear how the warring parties will receive it. According to sources, Egypt's three-phase deal will secure the release of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza. In the first phase of the plan, Israel will be expected to pause its military operations for one to two weeks for Hamas to release 40 hostages, including women and the elderly. The second phase includes an agreement of the exchange of bodies of Hamas held by Israel for the bodies of Israeli hostages held by Hamas. While the third phase of the plan includes an all-for-all deal, meaning Israel will return 6,000 Palestinian prisoners in its jails for the remaining Israeli hostages, including soldiers in Hamas captivity. Now, the third phase also includes the end of the war with Israel pulling out from Gaza and the establishment of a technocratic government in Gaza that will not be affiliated with Hamas and will get the support of the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar. Now, this three-phase plan is also outlined by Israeli and other international news outlets, citing various officials and diplomatic sources. A close confidant of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is expected to meet with the Biden administration officials of the United States. This is after the Israeli leader vowed a long fight ahead of the war in Gaza. Ron Demer, considered one of Netanyahu's closest allies, is expected to meet with officials from the White House and the State Department today to discuss the next phase of the war in Gaza. Dermer is a member of Israel's war cabinet who previously served as ambassador to the United States. He's is expected to meet with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and members of Congress. The National Security Council says they do not have any meetings to announce at this time. Iran and several of its armed proxies have vowed to retaliate against Israel following the alleged assassination of a senior Islamic Revolution Guard Corps commander in Syria, Iran's state-run IRNA, reported that the RGC commander, Syed Rassi Mousavi, was killed on Monday as an Israeli airstrike that targeted him hit a Damascus suburb. Iranian Foreign Minister Hossein Amir Abdullahian also warned Israel of repercussions, saying Tel Aviv should expect a tough countdown. In a separate statement, Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Nasir Kanani, said Iran deserves the right to take necessary measures, and respond to his killing at the right time and in the right place. According to the IRNA, Mr. Mazavi was serving as a military advisor in Syria. His alleged assassination comes at a time of heightened regional concern over Israel's ongoing war against Hamas in Gaza, which has led to fears of a wider conflict. The IDF declined to comment on the report. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu paid a Christmas visit to the soldiers in northern Gaza. Prime Minister Netanyahu, accompanied by Deputy Chief of Staff Major General Amir Parum, spoke with soldiers and commanders and pledged to continue to fight till the end. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Netanyahu is pointing out that Israel will not succeed in freeing the remaining hostages held in Gaza without applying military pressure. He was speaking at a meeting of the Israel's parliament, the Knesset, while hostages family members sat in a chamber looking down on the premier, holding posters of their relatives behind the plexiglass and intermittently interrupting him. Now, 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 the family members shouted, a deal brokered. In late November, by the U.S., Qatar and Egypt saw the release of more than 100 of the estimated 240 hostages who were taken captive to Gaza during the attack by Hamas on October 7. Two Egyptian security sources say Hamas and the Islamic Jihad rejected an Egyptian proposal on Monday that they relinquish power in the Gaza Strip in return for a permanent ceasefire. The families have amassed hostages gathered at the main gate of the Israel Defense Ministry Complex in Tel Aviv, waiting for security cabinet ministers in the hope of stopping their vehicles and pleading with them for help for their loved ones. The protesters laid out hourglasses, glasses, inferring time is running out for each of the hostages still in Hamas captivity
7: because the cabinet cabinet is uh, gathering here to discuss uh, a deal, the deal that's on the table. And uh, we're here to tell them that they have our back and that we trust them and believe them, that they can make um, brave uh, decisions. And uh, we expect them to do anything they can to bring back uh, the
8: hostages now.
6: I don't know who is going to come, but if it will be the Prime Minister, I will tell him that he is responsible to what happened in October 7, and he needs to fix it, he needs to bring them back as soon as possible, because they don't have any time over there in the tunnels and their life are in danger
9: and we hope that uh, they will uh, make a deal
0: as soon as possible because we need to save them
6: meanwhile the Israeli army has released multiple videos in which they claim they recovered a vehicle belonging to one of the hostages taken by Hamas during the October 7 terror attack a white Toyota Corolla can be seen parked in a shed near the Indonesian hospital in Gaza alongside a Toyota truck which they claim Hamas used during the October 7 attack the Israeli military say the car belonged to Samir al-Talalka one of the three hostages shot dead mistakenly by Israeli soldiers during combat operations in Gaza the videos were taken at the Indonesian hospital in northern Gaza which the Israeli army claims housed Hamas infrastructure on the other hand, Hamas has released footage purported to show the group's military wing, the Al-Qassam Brigade, fighting with Israeli military in the northern Gaza Strip. The footage appears to show the Palestinian groups using rocket-propelled grenades, RPGs, to engage in gunfire. Since the week-long truce collapsed at the start of the month, fighting has only intensified at, on the ground with war spreading from the north of the Gaza Strip to the full length of the densely populated enclave. We now turn our attention to a conversation we'll have with a research professor at the University of Johannesburg, Mr. Stephen Friedman. Uh, professor Friedman is speaking to our speaking to us virtually from Johannesburg. Thank you for joining us and good morning. Good morning. Now, first, let's begin by you telling us when the October 7 terror attack happened. How did that strike you? And the Retaliation, which continues now by the IDF, how did that hit you?
5: Well, I think the first thing to say what happened on, about what happened on October 7th is that uh, I'm against all forms of violence, but you need to be aware that this was the result of a situation in which there was a 16-year blockade of Gaza in which uh, a democratic election in Gaza, the results were simply overturned and ignored. In which, uh, throughout the world, the expression of the Palestinian side of the story was increasingly silenced uh, by uh, a variety of pressure. Um, That uh, although you don't condone violence against civilians, you know, as a student of politics uh, if you deprive people of basic rights and you deprive people of the basic form of expression uh, then unfortunately things like this are going to happen that's simply the way in which uh, humans uh, are to being treated in this way so so the real story is not what happened on october the seventh the real story is what Uh, happened over the the, the period before that uh, to to create the situation on October the 7th. Uh, As far as what has happened since then, um, it has become increasingly clear that what has happened since then has very little to do with what Hamas did on October the 7th. Um, No rational adult can believe that thousands of children were responsible for what uh, Hamas did. Uh, that uh, Christians trying to pray in churches in Gaza uh, were responsible for what Hamas did, uh, that 1.8 million people who have now been displaced from their homes were uh, have, uh, have, have, uh, responsible for what Hamas did. So what you have here is either uh, collective punishment. In other words, you punish an entire group of people for what some people have done. Or what happened on October the 7th is used as an excuse uh, to do what Israeli politicians were saying before October the 7th they wanted to do anyway, which is to remove Palestinians from Gaza, uh, a process which is known, of course, uh, as ethnic cleansing.
6: Now, Egypt has presented a three-phase plan of intervention to end the war in phases. And the first one speaks of the return, uh, rather, of the ceasefire to happen for about two weeks, uh, and for the return of 40 hostages. We can infer that the presence of Ismail Haniyeh, one of the leaders of Hamas in Egypt recently, formed possibly part of the consultations that the Egyptians made in arriving at this conclusion. Do you think, and we can go through the proposals, that in the first place, this proposal by Egypt will go down
5: well with the Israelis? Well, judging you know, I think what goes down well with the Israelis, what doesn't really depends on what America does. Uh, If America continues to do what it's been doing up to now, which is providing political cover for the Israelis and supplying them with weapons, uh, then the Israelis are not going to accept any kind of compromise. Uh, I mean, uh, their prime minister has said that the war will continue. Uh, I think it's also important to mention that uh, despite besides the question of, of ethnic cleansing, uh, the prime minister of the Israeli state has a direct interest in making sure that the war lasts as long as possible, uh, because it's well known that, uh, A, he's very unpopular, uh, B, he's facing criminal charges, and the only way he can stay in office is to extend this as much as possible. So he is going to continue this as much as he can. And that unless and until uh, the Americans listen not only to world opinion, but to majority opinion in America, because the polls tell us that the majority of Americans want to ceasefire. uh, uh and, and, and tell the Israelis that this has to stop, uh, that the killing has to stop. So, really, it, it depends much less on what the Israelis want at this stage than what the Americans want at this stage. Uh, and at the moment, the Americans are, are claiming to be concerned about the, the, the loss of life, uh, but they're not doing anything politically to prevent that loss of life.
6: Could you elaborate further on this insinuation, that, and part of which I think you've made, that Benjamin Zinyahu wants to cling on to power irrespective of the, uh, the well-being of the Israelis themselves because of the political and judicial reform that has occurred recently. Isn't this a man who, I think, for the sixth time now, gets in the uh, prime ministership and or premiership and saying that he has come as one of its principal reasons to help Israel and secure the security of Israel against Iran?
5: Well, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> there's no evidence to support that at all. I, I mean, Mr. Netanyahu wasn't actually interested in his own hostages uh, until Israeli public opinion forced him to be interested in the hostages. Uh, as far as he was concerned, uh, the only thing that mattered was his own political survival. And this didn't start on October the 7th. I mean, he's behaving been behaving this way for, for some time now. Uh, and, you know, he, he presides over the most right-wing government in Israel's history, which includes people who call themselves fascists. That's not my term, that's their term. Uh, because that is his only way of staying in power. And, it's got another, and, and at this stage, it's less to do with wanting to stay in power than wanting to stay out of prison uh, because he is faking criminal charges for corruption. Uh, and he believes that as long as he's prime minister, he can send off those charges. Uh, but if he ceases to be prime minister, he may well uh, end up uh, being convicted of corruption in Israeli courts. So, you know, I'm not, this is not particularly, it's media thing from, I think, you know, if you speak to people, most people uh, who are knowledgeable uh, about politics in the region, Uh, They will agree with my assessment that this has got very little to do with the security of anybody and everything to do with the political future of Mr. Netanyahu.
6: This forces us, Professor, to take a long, hard look at the relationship between the Israeli people and the Israeli government, the Knesset. Now that we have the hostages' families uh, expressing their grievances at, the, at a Knesset session involved in shouting. What picture does that present to the world of division in Israel? Never at a time, I think, in recent uh, times has Israel been so polarized with secularization uh, of Jews, ultra-nationalist Jews, and Arab Israelis in the Knesset, which paints a democratic picture but is is that helpful for the people and the governance of Israel in the region?
5: So you're breaking up, I can't get to the
6: end of your question. Okay, my question was, now that Israel is at this juncture where the families of the hostages are processing the manner in which the Israeli government is going about securing the release of the hostages. Does that help the way they are perceived by the world as not being united? Why would the Israeli government not carry the values yeah, of the hostages along?
5: Because, first of all, as I said, you know, the, the priorities of the Israeli government are the political survival of Mr. Netanyahu. Uh, and driving Palestinians out of Gaza. Anything else is accidental, incidental as far as they're concerned. Obviously, the priority of the families of the hostages is to get their loved ones home, as you would expect. And these are clashing priorities, which is why you see the demonstration that you do. And this is also a symptom of a wider fracture in Israeli society, which was very much in evidence before October the 7th. Uh, which is very broadly a division between uh, the religious and the secular. In other words, uh, secular people, people who do not follow traditional religious law, believe that uh, the religious want to take away their freedom. Both sides agree uh, on the need to continue dominating Palestinians. So what you see in a situation like this is uh, a group of people, and it, it so happens that most of the people, not all of them, most of the people who were taking hostage uh, because of their, like, their their physical location came from uh, groups who would be opposed to Mr. Netanyahu, uh, that they are blaming him for caring more about his political career and more about killing Palestinians than he does about their relatives. Uh, But this, as I say, is a symptom of a a, 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 a fracture in Israeli society, which is is very real and was in evidence in demonstrations for for weeks before uh, the events of October the 7th. But it is very important to stress that in the main, this difference between Israelis is not about how to treat Palestinians, it's about how to treat each other.
6: Let's, in consideration of the Egyptian proposals for the phasing out of the war, leapfrog to the third proposal by Egypt, which says, uh, which suggests that a technocratic system of government be in place by, uh, which will be overseen and get the support, I beg your pardon, maybe not overseen, but which they say in the wording, the wording is important, which will get the support of U.S the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar, absent of Hamas.
5: So is that a realistic proposal? Well, look, that's not how I understand the proposal. That's not my reading of the proposal. My reading of the proposal is that it would uh, include Hamas, uh, whether as actual members of the government or simply as supporters of the government, is um, unclear. Uh, but the purpose of the exercise Uh, uh, the the Egyptian proposal, uh, is to create a a unity government. I mean, the technocrats would be the people who are not affiliated with any faction. Uh, But central to this idea uh, is the idea that there would be uh, a unification, not necessarily becoming the same organization, but a unification process between the organizations. And, uh, what and, you know, this, this really illustrates the point I was making earlier, because this really uh, depends fundamentally on what America's attitude is. Because for some years now, uh, America has made it clear, because of its attitude to Hamas, that it is opposed to any kind of unity between Fatah, which is the party which governs uh, in the West Bank, uh, and Hamas. Uh, so if you're going to have the kind of unity government which the Egyptian proposal recommends, it would be necessary for the Americans to change their position for the Americans to accept uh, that uh, they have no business telling Palestinian political parties who should work uh, with each other. Uh, so uh, I don't, I, I mean, you know, there have been obviously American, uh, there has been an American presidency in the negotiations. Uh, I don't know whether this is... Uh, uh, a change in the American tradition officially uh, or simply what American negotiators on the ground are prepared to put up with that uh, as I say, what the Egyptians are proposing will not be possible unless there's a change in U.S. policy So,
6: now that you bring America up again, let's stay there for a second um, They take issue with Hamas because of their methods which is why they designated Hamas a terrorist organization Aside from the October 7 incident, how do you reconcile the position of Hamas as has been touted as a freedom-fighting unit to secure liberty of the Gazans against or Palestine against Israeli op- oppression with the methods that they've been using over the years involving including suicide bombing, targeting of civilians over the years? There were four hostages prior to October 7 that are still in captivity of Hamas, how do you reconcile both positions with uh, freedom fighting to the extent that their actions are set to be consistent with terrorist activity, for which not just the United Nations designated them a terrorist group, but obviously not all nations around the world?
5: No, not all nations. Uh, certain nations with a political act right. Well, you see, really, uh, the ignorance about Hamas uh, in America is almost as great as the indifference to Palestinian lives in America. Uh, what nobody talks about, and this is on record, is that for, over, for 15 years now, Hamas has been offering the Israeli state a ceasefire Uh, an indefinite ceasefire, a truce, uh, in which uh, violence will stop. And at every part of that stage, the Israelis have rejected that supported by the Americans. So whatever Hamas may or may not have done on October the 7th, it follows a period of repeated uh, requests by this organization to negotiate a settlement uh, to, to end the violence, which have been rebuffed repeatedly by the Americans and the Israelis, uh, and uh, instead of telling the truth about this, uh, we have a situation in which Hamas, whatever may be right or wrong with Hamas, uh, is presented as uh, the same as Islamic jihad and and and, and, and the same as, as, as Islamic state theory. Uh, which would terrorize people around the world. Uh, And, uh, you know, whatever your opinion of Hamas, uh, and like any other organization, uh, there are are pros and cons. Uh, You know, this kind of demonization is based on uh, falsehoods a lot of the time. So you have a situation over the last 20 years in which the world has shown total indifference as one side uh, asks for peace and the other side ignores it. And then because on October the 7th, the side which has been asking for peace for 20 years, uh, commits acts of violence, and then suddenly this confirms the fact that they are evil. I mean, in a sense, you know, we're, we're Africans, okay? And I think as Africans, we need to understand that what we're dealing with here is a deep colonial mindset, okay? Uh, they regard Palestinians just as the colonizers regarded Africans uh, when when, when they set up governments, Uh, all over Africa, uh, took away the sovereignty of African people, and demonized Africans as savages. And that's exactly what they're doing to the Palestinians right now. Would you, uh, uh,
6: and we are Africans, would you consider the actions of, uh, or the constitution, or the uh, position of the Israeli government as apartheid? And you will yes, be the best, in the best position <laughs> to tell
5: us that you're in South that, African. About it. I mean, studies have been conducted on this. I mean, before we look at the actual legislation, uh, the Israeli parliament passed a law which says that this is the state of the Jewish people. Now, the point is that there are actually other people. Uh, you know, it, would be the, it was exactly the equivalent of declaring South Africa the state of white people when most people were black. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's clearly a partake to say that this belongs, this, this state belongs. Uh, you know, if, uh, if 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 the British passed a law saying that Britain's only for white people, uh, we would quite clearly say that's racist. But when the Israelis say, do it, uh, it's treated as uh, it's not racist. Uh, I mean, beyond that particular example, uh, you know, there there, there there are hosts of of, of discriminatory laws directed at palestinians uh you know one of the problems with respect having a look at, at the coverage of you know which you were offering before uh, uh i came on air uh, the one thing which is missing from that which is missing uh, from a lot of the coverage uh, is any coverage of the way in which palestinians live uh and i'm not only talking about the fact that they're being bombed into rubble at the moment uh if you visit those areas as i've done uh, you discover a situation where people can't move uh, for more than five kilometers during the day because uh, they have to pass through hundreds of checkpoints where they humiliate them. Uh, I mean, I lived through a fight state and I can assure you uh, that what is happening in the Israeli state today uh, is a quite, a quite extreme form of a fight. Okay, I wish you had, certainly
6: wish you had more time, but we'll have to leave it there. And we thank you for your perspective and opinion this morning. Uh, professor Stephen Friedman, who is a research professor at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa, and joined us virtually from Johannesburg. Many thanks. Thank you. Still ahead. Pro-Palestinian protesters arrested during a demonstration in New York City. We'll have that story and more after the break. Please stay with us. Welcome back. Hundreds of people calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza and israel hamas war gathered in New York to protest. Footage captured on Christmas Day shows the demonstrators marching along 50th Street in Midtown Manhattan, brandishing flags and displaying various signs, advocating for a ceasefire, reading, All I Want for Christmas is a ceasefire now. Eyewitnesses' video also shows protesters pushing and shoving New York City police. According to a spokesperson from the New York Police Department, several individuals were taken into custody during the protest. Additionally, one officer sustained minor injuries. Despite these incidents, the NYPD swiftly dropped the situation under control, and the demonstration was successfully dispersed without further escalation.
0: The
6: campaign is anti-Israel and anti-Jewish campaign as described in their uh, government. Do you think that, um, do you foresee heavier Iranian involvement in this war between Hamas and Israel? Well, I can tell you that uh,
10: already Iran, Iran is one country that has tendency to develop Iran wants to be like the Western countries. While they take decisions to do certain things, they must also be strategic. Because the international community, the international scene now, all countries are watching development in the Middle East. As Iran is also trying to plan to take decisions, if they have to be strategic and tactical, their interests. Is supreme. They cannot and do not foresee a situation where Iran will come out or support an all-out war against Israel for now. Let me tell you that today, if you change the maritime domain that Iran has been accused of, construed missiles against uh, civilian ships, commercial ships in the Red Sea or along that stretch, you will find out that Iran has denied involvement in such, meaning Iran is also seeking some form of protection from international community. You know, the maritime domain is not controlled by a particular country. And if you look at the stretch of the Strait Canal, the Red Sea, and of course, that stretch of the maritime domain, it is not only one country that controls it. America today has mobilized about 20 nations or 20 countries of the world to defend that maritime domain. And Iran, of course, knows the implications for such alliance to be formed. So I do not think in any material particular that Iran, knowing where the world is now, will be able to come with an all-out war. What I think Iran will do, like you know that, an Israeli ally, the ally of Israel, which is America, they have a military infrastructure in the Middle East. They can decide to do the same thing by attacking such infrastructure wherever they are found. For that, for Iran to come out for a full-scale war against Israel, I am so doubt it that it will happen in that manner.
6: Is Israel prioritizing their military campaign over the lives of the hostages?
10: Yes, I agree. Israel is prioritizing, and I can also see them from the beginning of the war up to now. They are recalibrating their strategy and tactics. Because if they don't, if you look at the fallout after the killing of the three hostages, one of them waving Israeli flag you should also know that morale is part of morale back home any country waging war the morale of the soldiers the military and the morale of the civil populace the civil society as well is part of what you use in warfare so israel is also listening to domestic reactions of these people what are the people saying? what is the public opinion the public majority of the israelis want the living Captives to return to Israel. So, for the military engaging Hamas, they have to be tactical. They have to be careful, but it back fire back home if they are not careful to return Israelis who are living in captivity back to their homeland. So, the, is, is, the military high command knows this very well, and that is why Israel is being careful. And trying to recalibrate their bombardment of Gaza, either in town units in in, in, the, in Wada, Gaza and other places like the Rafa area where they are targeting the northern Gaza. Even they are also trying to be strategic and sharp so that they don't continue to be their own. And Maybe. for civilian, for civilian casualties. Uh, you know, America has been preaching, America has been on Israel to ensure that they protect civilians who are not combatants in this hostility. So Israel is also trying as much as possible not to continue to kill civilians who are non-combatants. The only problem there is in this war, and that is why this war is going to stretch longer and longer, is because it's an asymmetrical war, which I have mentioned before. You cannot easily identify your opponent, because your opponent will continue to be in a crowd that is more or less civilian population. So that is why this war is difficult. It's a difficult war, and it's going to stretch longer and longer.
6: It may be touching to mention that uh, one of the soldiers who was mistakenly killed, or rather, one of the Israelis who was mistakenly killed by the Israeli soldiers, when they had escaped from Hamas, uh, the mother of that soldier, or oh, sorry, that Israeli, sent a message to the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, that, uh, that she doesn't hold them, she doesn't blame them for what happened and encourage them to continue in the fight against Hamas, and not blaming them at all for the death of her son at their hands. But for a post-war Gaza and West Bank oh, let me say Gaza now, do you foresee Israel acquiescing to this Egyptian proposal of a technocratic government that has the support of the US, of Qatar and Egypt devoid of Hamas but without mentioning whether it will be militarized or not which is one of the bones of contention of the Israelis well do
10: you know uh, there will be several options on the table. And one of the things I know for sure that Israel will not easily agree is the security and military uh, status of Gaza after the war. It is very important if you look at what Israel did the discovery of Israel during this round operation in Gaza. Israel's defense his own security is very important in the circumstance thereof. Any discussion that does not define and give a role to the IDF or Israeli government to know what will happen after the war, I doubt if Israel would easily accept such propositions. But what I know about what is happening, there should be a proposition then several amendments can also form. Because if you stop discussion, if you stop diplomacy, then you have stopped the war. Diplomacy must continue. There must be consensus building so that they can get to a middle point where both all parties to the can agree. But one thing I know that is one point very clear in this war, given their objective, is that Israel, will find it extremely difficult to accept any post, war situation or status or arrangement also ever, that includes the, the Israeli military in taking charge of the security of Gaza and West Bank, And that is one area I know that is also part of the problem, part of the problem of the two-state solution. Security because of the regular boundary. Look at the location of Gaza Strip. Look at the location of West Bank. Israel in the middle. So what you will find, security is key in whatever discussion that is going to bring about peace between Israelis and Palestinians. So the proposition by Egypt, yes, should be commenced, but I know in between there will be several amendments for them to arrive at the point. But at we are. With this current draft, I don't think it will be acceptable to the Israelis.
6: Thank you so much. Even the
10: objective of the war.
6: Wow. When it does rain, it does pour. Uh, We pray that there is uh, a way out uh, in this crisis that uh, leaves uh, justice uh, served at the end of the day. We thank you so much for your contribution and insight this morning, Mr. The Queen Awaji Upani International Affairs Analyst who joined us from Puerto Harkat. Many thanks.
10: Thank you so much. And I pray at the end of the word, the report is called Transitional Justice, for war transitional justice, so that wrongs committed against those who ordinarily ought not to suffer such wrongs can be righted by the International community. Thank Indeed. you that
6: so sounds, much. That sounds just about right. Thank you so much, sir. Coming up, Still to come on the program, Gaza Christian Fashion. Welcome to the final stretch of the program this morning. Gym goers at a Tel Aviv gym take part in special workouts to commemorate Israel's fallen soldiers. They do this every Friday, and the last one was no different when members of the CrossFit White City gym gave it their all during their hero workout, as they call it. Gamir Ezinkat, ezin who's 25 years of age, was among hundreds of thousands of military reservists mobilized for an Israel offensive in response to the October 7th cross-border killing and kidnapping spree by Hamas. A commando, he was killed on December the 7th in the Enclaves North, where Israeli forces are battling Hamas in a handful of hold districts after overrunning Gaza City last month. Hamas says he was killed by a bomb rigged to a guerrilla tunnel in the district of Tal al-Zatar, who So the son of Israeli war Cabinet Minister Gaddi Eshintat. And finally... A Christian family who fled their home in Gaza due to Israeli strikes marked Christmas Day along with other displaced Palestinians. The Sabah family gathered around a bonfire together with their Muslim friends who were also sheltering in a house in southern Gaza. This year, the family says they didn't put up a Christmas tree and haven't been able to go to church to pray. Three weeks ago, the Saba family fled their house in Gaza only with a few belongings and headed south. Hazim Saba says the war has taken away the Christmas spirit as they constantly think about people who are dying, houses being damaged, and the streets of the city that are no more. Uh, That's where we leave it for this morning's coverage of Israel-Hamas war. Thank you for watching. I'm Eloubide McCauley. Compliments of the season.
1: That report uh, was uh, from channels television uh, in the West African state of Nigeria. And it was a report uh, analyzing uh, the current situation involving uh, Iran, uh, Israel, the United States, along uh, with the siege of Gaza. The Egyptian uh, proposal, uh, which uh, was floated uh, just over the weekend, among other issues. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal. Special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, uh, December 26, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. love is, classic uh, rhythm and blues music, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for today, uh, Tuesday, December 26, uh, 2023, and we are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to go to a detailed discussion on the situation in Palestine, Gaza in particular, And uh, this uh, was recorded on day 78. Uh, Let's listen in.
11: Okay, everybody. We're back um, with our biweekly Panky group therapy session. I think this is number eight. Um, And we have Sina, Alex, John, Nora. And this time we have an actual therapist. So we have Lara uh, Shihai joining us. Um, and instead of me just giving everybody 10 minutes to go around, we'll actually let Lara uh, facilitate the whole hour-long session. So uh, Lara, I want
7: to hear Lara's 10 minutes as well. Like Yeah, of
11: course. Yeah, of course.
7: yeah. Okay, good.
11: So, Lara, Alex. I'm going to turn it over to you. You have the floor.
8: Sure. Thanks, folks, for having me. Well, I think, like, I'm coming in as a guest to your space. And so that would be the same thing is that sometimes as therapists, we come in, you know, we get asked to be consultants. And so I'm going to treat the space like that. And, and you all have a a vibe and a sort of communal process going. So part of what I'll be doing today is listening in and I have the benefit of coming in also not as fully part of the process. So I'll be tracking several things at once, maybe themes that come through or various, um, you know, uh, thoughts or threads, and then can reflect back and and hopefully have you all jump in and and do what you've already been doing. You know, that's part of the therapist thing is that you all do the stuff. I just get to hold some of it for you (laughs) today. So um, I heard you say that you do your check-in. So maybe we can just start there.
11: uh maybe i'll start um i've been thinking about a few things one one thing is like i i was i've been struck by like i've i've read veterans of war uh testimonies and one of the things they say and it's a little bit like characters in catch 22 say this by joseph heller like one thing that you're you can't believe is that somebody's actually shooting you and trying to kill you like there's just you're even though you're on a battlefield it's like i can't believe this person's shooting at me like and yosarian says that over and over and i've had this feeling where i just can't believe how much like we're all in the media or in academy the academy and we have some access to senior leadership of these institutions or we watch them work or we watch the governments of our countries work. And it's just, I can't believe how much they hate us. I can't believe how much they hate us, how much they're willing to lie to us, how much contempt they have for us. And it's just, that's been just like watching the statement, the, the way the ceasefire vote worked, and then the way they tried to reappropriate the word ceasefire now. So they're like, yeah, we're Canada's like, we're for a ceasefire, but what we meant by being for a ceasefire is Israel can do whatever they want and kill as many people as they want. And then whenever they stop, that's what we'll call a ceasefire. And that's what we're in favor of. And so that's like one of the feelings that I've been having is just this feeling like, wow, like we are, we are ruled by such heartless people who are so, so eager to lie about everything. And they just think, we're that stupid that they just will lie to us, like just lie to our faces constantly. Uh and And then like the other thing I have, the other feeling I have is like, when I think about like a grieving process where somebody dies and then you go through this whole grieving process for this person, but like, you can't do that here because, every day there's 500 more or a thousand more people that are being killed and there's some new atrocity that's happening and so like you can't even keep track you can't even keep track in your mind of what happened or what happened when and it's just like this overload of The, like your human, the, I think we have capacities for grieving and getting over things, but I don't think this type of occurrence is it falls within our our human ability to handle it. So I don't know. In terms of like what I've been doing, I have different weeks. This week I've been doing just the thing where I turn everything off and I try to work as much as possible. And then if I stop, I start feeling really bad so I just try to work again Um, so it's just like as if like a volume of words that I write or a volume of content that I can put out can somehow influence this outcome like I'm just not writing enough or I'm just I haven't made enough videos or something so those are my feelings.
8: Thanks Justin. I just sort of want to reflect back a, a thread that I'm hearing before we go on to whoever wants to go next is there's a way in which you're at the point where you're trying to organize all the things internally and externally, right? But one of the things you're saying that runs across both these stopping points, right? Both these points of pause that you have is that there's something unmetabolizable about what is happening. And that can feel very overwhelming, but there's also a sense of clarity that I'm hearing you sort of articulate, right, that there's something grounding about us not being able to metabolize, right? And I kind of want to just have that float over the time that we're together, but what does it mean to not be able to metabolize and what does that mean in terms of our ability also to keep going, right? That there are some things that should not be metabolizable and, and us able to kind of take in and then just go on our daily lives.
7: I guess I can go. I I I think I'm this. I'm at this point where uh, there. I I'm 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 so angry. I'm like I'm I'm just kind of in this constant like frothing pit of rage. Um, and it's actually like, I don't know, it kind of, a, it feels like I, I'm in almost like a numb stage of that rage, which is something that I, I don't think I've ever felt before, maybe this acutely or like this, um, for this lengthy amount of time before. Um, and I still like, I, I was talking to my own personal therapist about this, like I still haven't uh, sat down and cried yet. Um, And, you know, I'm like joking about it with her. I'm like, uh, you know, it's probably because I'm on enough Zoloft to like sedate an elephant at this point. But like, but really like, I think it's just like this, this total wall of rage and like, and also like what Justin was saying, like disbelief that this, is continuing to happen and that nobody is, is stopping this. And like, you know, the, like we had, uh, Craig Malkyver who was a, a UN official on the EI live stream yesterday. And, and he was talking, you know, he was basically just kind of, you know, peeling apart the layers of like the, the, the levels of, um, like calculated uh in, intended failure of the UN as a systemic body to step in and stop this um and how it's you know the, like you know these these institutions are just meaningless at this point and and so you know it just kind of like um that i mean i i know that we know that already but to like hear it in this kind of more like official, you know, insider capacity. Um, I I don't, I, I don't know. Like I couldn't, um, I still, I still, I'm having a really hard time processing that. And I think it's just like the level of like, yeah, constant gaslighting, constant lying, constant vitriol um, and, and, and like the, 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 the way that Palestinians are being so dehumanized and constantly and like, I'm just, I, I don't, yeah, I, I just feel like it's, um it's so, it's so much, it's so much all at once and there's, there's no break. And then, and then uh yeah and 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 there's no time to grieve and like grieving almost seems like a um like a a privilege at this point um and yeah i i don't know there's there's just um there's a way in which I feel like i'm i'm losing a lot of myself um like the ways that I used to be and the you know like um, th- my own perception of myself as like, you know, very um, empathetic and I'm humanist and I'm compassionate. And like all of that is maybe still true, but it's being overshadowed by how much hatred <laughs> and anger I feel um, toward Israel, obviously, and toward Americans and 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 the system as a whole and I'm like I don't I don't know how I'm who I'm going to be after this um and so it's like just kind of like destabilizing in many different <laughs> ways I feel um and I st- you know I still feel like I've, I I want to be able to sit down and have a good cry about it um but but I I there's you know it's either like chemically i can't do that yet or just there's too much rage to 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 feel sad which you know they're two sides of the same coin but it's but it's just this very like it's a very strange kind of like middle middle path that i'm on between grief and rage i guess yeah
8: yeah there's something really important about What you're articulating around also that I sort of want to throw out for us to to chew on a little bit about how, whether it's grief, as Justin was saying, or you said that as well, but you're talking about rage, right, and about how rage and hatred are coded in a very specific way. And so that sort of idea that somehow you're different because you're feeling this, right, is just for us also to think about that in the middle of this, even as we're clear on where that's, what the source is. But there's something about the world we live in and these structures that also have us go, you know, that, that these things get lodged inside of us around a moralism, right, mm-hmm. about what, what rage means, what not being able to grieve. But what I'm hearing is there's very real processes that are suspended, just as we see, right, and this might be the parallel when we commute between the individual and the structural, just as we see certain things that we might have relied on being suspended, right? Affectively, you all are also describing a sort of suspension that's happening. And so part of the process is also what are the codes and how do we sort of unlearn them and decodify certain things like rage, like grief, and the expectations we have about what that looks like, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's something really important about marking what is actually different. And I hear you start to do that, both of you, and I'd be interested in in... The others, too, about there is a difference, whether that's the unvarnished rage that you're feeling that, that you said not quite sustained in this way as before, or just in you saying, you know, I can't believe they hate us this much, right? Like there's there's a marking of a difference here, and that, that feels useful psychically and emotionally, too.
12: Mm.
8: You know?
0: Who's next, Alex?
13: <laughs> um, I think those are two really the, the two things that you just mentioned, Laura. Really, I think got to me to um, the the idea of like suspension and, and the idea of marking. Um, like I've, I've interviewed folks who whose loved ones were disappeared. By the Mexican state, right? And and they always talk about that, how it's um they, they live in a state of like suspended animation almost, right? Because the very uh tactic or goal of that type of terror is to en- enact that, right? To to that to force the survivors to live through uncertainty. Um, for decades. And um that idea of suspension, right, like time stops moving to a certain extent or uh is, is something that I've been feeling the last, what are we, 70 plus days now. Um, that, that there is, there's certain things I do ritually now that I didn't do before, right? Like um, I probably spend way too much time on social media, but there's certain accounts <laughs> that I follow now just to, um, it's like watching the EI live stream, right? To, to give me a little bit of hope and not just to focus on the the horrific. Um, violence and terror that we're witnessing day in day out and then feeling helpless in terms of not being able to do anything about it um, so it's weird. so it's, it's a it's a it's an, a sense of suspension but also trying to set new ways to like organize that suspension and 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 what I read what I write um, that the same temptation that that justin described where I just throw myself into my own research that has almost nothing to do with what's going on um, it's a very real temptation or just Um, I'm on research leave this year, which has been really great uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's like uh, it's also really isolating to a certain extent, which is probably a good thing because if I was on campus, I'd be yelling at colleagues all the time. And that's probably not good for my job prospects, but our career stability. Um, So yeah, these like rituals that I, the the way I schedule my time um, is different now. Um, And the idea of marking also is, like, intellectually, as a historian, like, I know, like, what these monsters, like, who these monsters are, like, I know who they are, I know what they think, I know what they do. But then it's another thing to just watch it, and to, like, live through it, and to uh, have a very, like, I want to break stuff when I see John Kirby, like, I really want to, like, smash something. I mean, I, yeah, I'll leave it there. Uh, It's just, like, you know, this, That that Gramsci quote about living in a time of monsters kept getting thrown around here in the US when the the orange man won the election. But no, like this is like the time of monsters, right? Like this is actually like a a horrific time where all masks are off and and we see the unvarnished lies, um, the horrific uh, half-assed attempts to justify the unjustifiable. And then we receive that and we feel powerless. I think that's really, for me, it's really difficult to deal with, um, that, that idea, okay, we see the monsters, we see what they're doing, what's next, right? And, I, and for me, like, obviously beyond my own family and, 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 and my kids, it seems like parasocial relationships, like with you all who I've never met in person, but I like feel like, you know, we've created a, a very cool sustaining and communal network, um, which has been really helpful. Um, the other thing, too, that stands out for me um, is – well, two things, and I'll leave it at that. One is, like, that the violence exercise against children really gets to me because I have two kids, I guess. And, um, and to see, like, a video I watched earlier, I don't know, yesterday or Friday of, a, of a, essentially a parent holding a kid out who's, like, bleeding out and not being able to do anything about it. And that, like, just – man, like, I can't even – it's really difficult for me to put into words, like, what I'm feeling – um, when I when I watch that video and and I feel like I have to watch it right because I feel that's the very least we can do, um, but then it also creates a certain um, like a link right because I have kids and, and and I think about what I would do if I were in that situation, um, and that just intensifies the this 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 horrific experience for me, and I'll end with the idea of, that I already kind of mentioned right about what solidarity constitutes at this moment. Um, one of the discussions I saw online this week was somebody tweeting something like, you know, if you're not an Arab or an Israeli and you really care about this topic, I get really suspicious of why you care about it. And that made me throw a couple of books around, I guess, as a typical nerd, right? Um, but like, what, like, so what is this solidarity, right? And the, this reading, this this great piece by um, this journalist who lives not too far from here in Tucson, uh, Todd Miller, who who interviewed uh, an environmentalist environmentalist, scientist from the West Bank, Dr. Uh, Masim Kumsia. And he has this great quote where he's talking about Palestinians and Native Americans. And he's saying this as they're standing on the U.S.-Mexico border under the shadow of an Elbit surveillance tower. And he says, look, I don't like the word solidarity. The struggle of of Native Americans is my struggle as well. Um, So he's he's asking us to think about moving beyond solidarity and to, to connect the dots about their struggle is our struggle. And I think that's thinking about that is one of the things that keeps me going and not just to get uh, bogged down in, in these horrific news and images that we're inundated with uh, day in, day out.
8: Yeah. You're doing something really beautiful with the, again, that what you mentioned is reorganizing both what suspension means and then also what, um, you know, marking because we can think about if we're thinking about solidarity in the way that you just ended thinking of what you want to, move against, that's a marking that also reifies maybe borders and atomization in a particular way. And you're saying, how do we reorganize, right? I I do, again, we're back to sort of where Justin was sort of organizing for us. And I think that we can use that word in a lot of different ways, affectively, psychically, materially, right? How are we organizing these things? And, And just for us to sort of keep in mind again as we're even in this communal process like something is being created in a communal process of group of a group holding space right and that is the process of that's emerging of what do we reorganize right but the way we can mark that is also recognizing the psychological tools what what is used to invade the province of the psyche right despair being one of those things right uh separation thinking that witnessing is an end point right that that's where it ends that's that is what also creates despair rather than you all coming together and this group coming together over and over and over again is also a working through it's a working through and it, it maybe transforms that suspension as also refusal to succumb to conditions as they are right so this process also reorganizes. Again, what does solidarity mean? These questions, I suppose, what I'm saying is that they're not empty. Just we're not just speaking into the wind. We're actually a- actively creating something as you process, as you reorganize, and that, as we know from our politics, that's a that's a constant. That's a constant thing. That's what struggle means.
11: Can I say Hold one on thing next. before oh, go ahead, before, before you go, Cena? So, you know, just when when Alex, when you said somebody gets suspicious if you're if you're not an Arab or something, I just wanted to say I just wanted to identify a feeling because I've seen a lot of those things and I just don't care. It's just I have this really really un- unbelievably growing apathy of like people who are pro-genocide. It's like, I don't care what you think. I don't care that you're suspicious. I don't care at all. I don't care about any of it. I don't care what you call me. I don't care what you say that I am. I just, so, and, and it's, it's actually, that's like one of the most freeing feelings that I have is like, I realize how afraid I was of like the opinions of others. And it's like realizing that these are not people that are fit to, you know, shine your shoes. Like I would, we should never, you know, I will never, I, I will never again care what people that are in favor of this genocide are suspicious of or care, you know, or yeah. think of me.
7: Yeah, sorry. No, that is liberating. It is very liberating. Um, it's also scary because we're we're taught to you know to like want to obtain uh affirmation and um acceptance and and there's also this part sometimes when I run into that it, there's like this part of well if they could, you like if like if I can if I can Tell tell this person who whose opinions I shouldn't ever be chasing um, that I can say something that will get them to see me also as a human and and therefore, you know, the the liberation struggle for Palestinians as something also worthy of having the correct opinion on and being able to let that go is is also really liberating. <laughs> These people. Yeah, they're not worth our time. And it's still, there's still like this very, like, um, very deep seated, uh, for me, maybe it's because I'm a woman. I, I don't, I don't know, but like, you know, constantly trying to like, get, get people to, to like me and like my opinion on something and, and tell me that I'm right, um, that's I mean, maybe that's like a lifelong struggle to to work on, but um but yeah, being able to let go of people whose opinions don't actually matter and who because they are pro genocide, because they are absolutely on the wrong side is um yeah, that's it's freeing. Sorry, that was just me going off.
8: think the disidentification right is a part of this is to disidentify whether that's you know as anti-capitalist or anti-imperialist or all that it is a daily process of disidentifying from the affective investment we have in things in transactions in uh in certain meaning in certain codes right and and you're right there is all of you are going to have a particular individual approach to this that's shaped by your own histories, your own social location, your family, your upbringing, the social world. That is right. That is specific to you. And then also, if we're again commuting between the individual and the structural, there are certain logics that end up being followed, and that disidentification is what feels freeing. What I what I was saying, and then I think Sina had started to speak, is that. Um, you know there's something really important about that that letting go process, right, and what I often say, whether it's to my students or patients, is that the impulse is not the issue. The impulse to want people to see you as human, to believe you to that is not what we're pathologizing here. that is the difference I'll be behind cheek here between you and a sociopath. <laughs> right? Like the impulse is there because you're relational beings and we live in a world that is logic around that, right? So is there a way for us to honor the impulse and then recognize materially what actually is getting in the way of that happening, right? And that is a political analysis versus an affective one, right? So I think that, again, the constant moving through these spaces is that's that's the practice part of it that's that's the hard part yeah.
12: so yeah i I'll go here now um 'cause I feel i don't know i've I've brought this up before, and this is like a constant problem for me um if only because this is how I think and this is how my training was, but in terms of like I keep thinking about. Like the we're at a we're at an intersection, we're at like a historical point where the mimetic representation of reality has reached its pinnacle. Like there's no like like anti-imperialists 50 years ago would have to like read the newspaper, be like, wow, that's rough. Like, you know, and like that that's how they got information. Like there was no like we didn't have a live stream of traumatizing images and like into directly fed into my brain like every morning i wake up and i pick up this little rectangle of trauma called my cell phone and i look at it and i learn things about the world that like i didn't need i didn't want to know like i didn't want to know this morning that like the israelis pushed some woman off a of five like a five-story building and like executed her that way like isis style like my brain my brain and like my political compass and myself and my position in the world, like, didn't necessarily need that, right, for, like, something, right? Like, but we're trained as, like, liberal subjects that, like, education, information, the news is something that develops you, right, as, like, a citizen subject, right? Like, and it's, and to me, I I find myself growing angrier and angrier at people in my life, like, close people in my life with their problems. I was like, what are you talking about? Like my mom, here's an example, my mom was having a meltdown because her tires were losing air pressure. And she's like texting.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, panel discussion on uh, the impact uh, of the siege of Gaza on those uh, in the communication journalism field. And that's going to conclude uh, our program for today, the Pan-African Journal. Special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for Tuesday, December 26, uh, 2023, and we've been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, uh, just go to the Pan African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to the website uh, which is panafricannews.blogspot.com That's panafricannews.blogspot.com And we're going to close out uh, with a feature from Oscar Brown Jr. uh, featuring the legendary uh, pianist, uh, Phineas Newborn Jr. Let's listen in. And this is Abiyomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Uh
14: Oscar Brown Jr. on the Jazz Scene USA. Among the hundreds of fine musicians jazz has produced, some are noted for the heartwarming beauty of their music, others for the brilliance of their instrumental technique. It isn't very often that you find true inspiration combined with total virtuosity. One exception to that rule is the amazing young man in the spotlight today, Hugh don't have to take my word for it, of course. The only requirements are Phineas <coughs> Newborn's hands and your attentive ears as he plays his own theme for Basie. for Basie, named for a musician who heard Phineas Newborn ten years ago in Memphis and Basie swears he hasn't recovered yet. A reviewer once said that Phineas has a command of the instrument to make other pianists weep and the ability to translate into immediate action any thought that comes into his head. Even among classical pianists who perform set compositions, the complete virtuoso is a rarity. But. When you get into jazz and a great deal of improvisation is called for, the demands on the player are almost forbidding. Phineas has a background of years of intensive study as a concert pianist. You might assume this from the way he incorporates a Ravel sonatine as an introduction into his next performance. From his recent album, A World of Piano, Phineas plays the durable Billy Strayhorn melody, Lush Life. One night, years ago, when the late Art Tatum and the first great bop pianist, Bud Powell, were both working at Birdland in New York, Art acted a little sarcastic toward Bud. He called him a one-handed piano player who relied entirely on his right hand. Well, the next night, Bud walked in, sat down at the piano, and played the whole set with nothing but his left hand. Tatum apologized, and that night they buried the hatchet and went out together and had a ball. I'm I'm telling you this little anecdote because Spinius shows a Bud Powell influence as well as a Tatum-like facility and because the next newborn opus is blues for the left hand only.